everyone. Welcome to another episode of At The Boundary, a podcast from the Global and National Security Institute at the University of South Florida. I'm Jim Cardoso, Senior Director for GNSI and your host for At The Boundary. As we record this, we're coming up on Christmas and this will be our last episode of 2023. We'll resume our new episodes on January 8th. Couple quick updates on GNSI. We're excited to let you know that we are growing. Dr. Dave Oakley recently joined our team as our academic director. He most recently was an associate professor at Joint Special Operations University and retired from the U.S. Army after serving as an artillery officer and strategist. His career also includes time in the CIA, the U.S. National Counterterrorism Center, and as an associate professor at the National Defense University. Dave is also a visiting research fellow at King's College in London. We're excited to have Dave join our team as he grows and manages GNSI's academic and fellowship programs. I'd also like to give you a heads up on a few events I think you'll be interested in. In February, we're working with the St. Petersburg Conference on World Affairs for their annual event. This year's theme is Rethinking International Policy, and we'll cover topics in regional issues, artificial intelligence, and global and national politics. That conference is February 6th through the 8th on University of South Florida's St. Petersburg campus. On March 5th through 7th, we'll be hosting our third GNSI Tampa Summit featuring the 9th Great Power Competition Conference at the USF Tampa Campus's Marshall Student Center. The theme for Tampa Summit 3 is Artificial Intelligence in the Era of Strategic Competition. We have some fantastic speakers lined up for this event with a combination of keynotes, panels, fireside chats, roundtables, and breakouts over the first two days to cover this critical topic. The third day will be spearheaded by the Institute for Artificial Intelligence at USF, known as AI Plus X, and will focus on the industry side of AI. On April 10th, we're excited about our next GNSI Policy Dialogues event. The theme will be the Iran Enigma, Navigating Strategy and Security, and it'll be held at the Patel Center for Global Solutions on the USF Tampa campus. For more information and to get registered for these fantastic events, go to our GNSI website and just click on the Events tab. Okay, on to today's featured content. We have a terrific episode lined up with Dr. Chase Sova, the Senior Director of Public Policy and Research for the World Food Program USA at the United Nations and lead author for a blockbuster report published early this year. The report shows that 70% of all hunger in the world is connected to violence and conflict. This report was a follow-up to the World Food Program's groundbreaking report, Winning the Peace, in 2018. Dr. Sova was a speaker at our GNSI Policy Dialogues conference, Hunger is a Weapon, earlier this year. The policy dialogues are designed to address what could be considered non-traditional global and national security issues, like the weaponization of hunger, water and energy security, human trafficking, climate change, disinformation, violent extremism and radicalization, and many others. After the conference, Dr. Sova sat down with Dr. Tad Schnaufer, GNSI's Strategy and Research Manager, for a discussion about hunger as a weapon, the work of the World Food Program, the Desperately Hungry Report, and a number of other topics. First off, how'd you get started and uh, interested in this field of uh, hunger and conflict? 
Yeah, you know, I started out in, at the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization, actually a sister organization to the World Food Program. Uh, I had a colleague, really a family friend, who, who had gone to Rome to work for FAO when I was in undergraduate. I went to the, from Wisconsin and, and went to the University of Wisconsin, Eau Claire, uh, sort of begged this person. I said, take me on. I'll volunteer. I'll do whatever I need to do to get into the UN system. And so I, I went over to Rome and got interested in food and agriculture issues. Uh, you know, and around that time was, was this is probably 2008, 2009, credible amount of interest in that point in climate change and food security in particular. We had some tough negotiations in Copenhagen around uh, the, the Conference of the Parties. Climate negotiations were sort of failing, and the world came together and, and redoubled efforts and decided to spend a lot of money on, on global food security as it relates to climate change. So I sort of found myself in this, uh, this climate change and food security space uh, over the next five years did my PhD, and then uh, eventually made my way to Washington, D.C., where I, where I now work for the United Nations, well, for the World Food Program USA, which is a, a nonprofit partner of the World Food Program here in the United States. All right. Well, very fascinating story. That's yeah. very interesting. So the, the report itself, it starts off with a quote from uh, Maslow. So Maslow's hierarchy of needs, obviously the physiological needs of the base. So yeah. what, what, uh, what importance do you ascribe to that? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, listen, I mean, you know as well as I do that there are certain fundamental needs that we have to have met before we can ever, you know, have these sort of self-fulfillment or broader level needs that are met. Uh, and so food security is among those core and fundamental things that we have to consider first. And when those when that isn't met, then there are terrible consequences for the individual and there are broader consequences for society. Uh, and that's really the origin, uh, and that's really the reason, I think, for grabbing this Maslow quote to begin with, mm -hmm. and in particular, drawing that into the title of this report, Dangerously Hungry. What we're not saying here is that all hungry people are violent, or all violent people are are hungry. Right. Uh, what we are saying is that there are certain conditions in which uh, food insecurity can drive conflict and instability, and we try to cover that in in, in this report. Right. Well, and, and speaking of this report and the one that uh, preceded it, Winning the Peace, yeah. uh, what, can you cover what brought about the publication of Winning the Peace and then this follow-on? Yeah. Well, you know, I think part of the motivation and part of my motivation as well for getting into this, back to your first question, is, uh, you know, when I, I spend a lot of time up on Capitol Hill, and my job to a certain extent is convincing lawmakers of the value of international foreign f food assistance and foreign assistance programs just in general, right? And when you think about the reason that lawmakers support things like international food assistance, it's typically this sort of three-legged stool, right? We think about the morality of these things, we think about the economic impacts of these things, and we think about the national security impacts. And I think for a very, very long time, we've sort of known what the economic impacts and benefits are of these programs, and we've done a pretty good job of building that evidence base. The morality has never really been in question, but the investigation into the national security or the sort of uh, stability impacts of, of not feeding populations that, that need to be fed, uh, that wasn't really well studied. And what we knew about that relationship was sort of anecdotal. You know, I used to, to work a lot with Senator Pat Roberts' team, and you know, he had this famous quote where he said, show me a nation that can't feed itself, and I'll show you a nation in chaos. 
you know, and I've heard folks like Senator Lindsey Graham say, feed them now or fight them later. So we knew sort of anecdotally that these relationships existed, but we wanted to bring it from the realm uh, of the anecdotal to, to something that was more research-based. And that was really uh, when we started looking at winning the peace back in 2017, and then a follow-on study uh, just this year, which is dangerously hungry. Right, and so what are the major trends that you've seen that have stayed the course through both those studies and which ones have changed? Perhaps? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, you know, there's, I, I think that we're seeing more in dangerously hungry on the ways that rebel organizations in particular, or let's call them extremist organizations, are recruiting people based on desperation. So we sort of had, I, I think, a, a few nods to this in the original de- Winning the Peace report, but I think we have more evidence based now. You know, sort of ISIS paying people $1,000 to join their cause, Boko Haram offering loans and things like motorbikes or food, you know, these sort of opportunity cost theory items that can convince somebody to join a rebel organization or, or a non-state actor group. Um, and so we have a little bit more on that space, I think. There's also, what's interesting is, is there is more on climate security in this report, of course, than we ever had in, in yeah. winning the peace. So climate change, of course, is a major driver of you know, global instability. But some of the best studies in all of that work run through food systems. Food systems are on the front line of, of the impacts that climate is going to have on security down the road. And so about 50% of the studies in winning the peace sort of fall into that climate change uh, category and there's been such growth in the climate and security literature that we've grabbed a little bit more of that in the Dangerously Hungry report. You know, I think there's also more uh, in the Dangerously Hungry report on how food abundance can drive conflict. Typically, you know, the World Food Program is working in places of scarcity, but even in places that have been completely wiped out uh, or, uh, you know, places where agricultural systems are not functioning, there's there's still are pockets of agricultural productivity that can become you know, highly contested in that sometimes non-state actor groups will cooperate with those communities and later turn on them in a coercive way when they need access to those resources to fuel a rebellion, to fuel their movement, etc. So we end up, uh, we have a little bit more, I think, in Dangerously Hungry on this uh, agricultural abundance theory uh, and a little bit more on, uh, on, on those topics. There's also more on the, the resource conflict just in general. You know, back in 2017, the African Sahel was sort of just getting onto people's radar in terms of its security implications. We're seeing more about uh, conflict between herders and pastoralists and, and agricultural communities, especially as the Sahara Desert sort of continues to creep south in the African Sahel. So there's a little bit more on that. And then, of course, food is a, a weapon of war. This was not a conversation that we were having just five years ago. Uh, and now it's become sort of common parlance in Washington. Washington, D.C. and other places. It's the reason that we're, we're gathering in places like University of South Florida and having these conversations. Um, so I think, uh, you know, more to say on the on the food as a weapon of war stuff, but I would say that's that's uh, that's certainly more apparent in Dangerously Hungry than it was in win- Winning the Peace. Sure, and the broad scope of both these uh, reports, well, what would you say is the overall relationship between hunger and conflict and how do they interact? Yeah. Well, I mean, what a great question and what a big question. That's right, really yeah, what, we're, what we're tackling with this report. Right. You know, the bottom line is that you, 
food insecurity in and of itself in a vacuum is, is very unlikely to produce instability or conflict, right? There has to be some sort of individual motivation that's associated with that that drives somebody to make the decision to, to uh, choose violence over peace, for example. Uh, so what we're not saying is that when some people, when somebody is hungry, they are necessarily going to be violent. I think I've made that clear at the start. What we are saying is that there are certain conditions that are a combination of, of drivers and individual motivators that do create the circumstances and the conditions for somebody to participate in uh, food-related instability. And, and really, I like to, to group those into three buckets of drivers and three buckets of motivators. And when you have those things come together in any combination, that's really the conceptual framework for, for this report. The drivers, we can talk a little bit about if you sure. like. The drivers, uh, because we have this growth in the climate security literature, one of the major drivers in this report is climate change. And essentially, uh, those studies are looking at the ways that things like like temperature changes, precipitation changes, sea level rise, etc. How those things are affecting uh, or having downstream effects on resource conflict and economic shocks. Right. So in the climate security literature, for example, we have somebody look at uh, one of the researchers, just as an, a tangible example, was looking at temperature increases or changes in critical growing phases of staple crops in sub-Saharan Africa from 1970 to 2012. Mm -hmm. And what they found in that period is a pretty considerable increase in the likelihood of civil conflict when you had major temperature spikes in, in certain growing phases. Now, when you extend that data out for the next 30 years, and you look at the likely temperature impacts uh, on agricultural systems, they expect civil conflict to increase by around 30% over that time period. The same is true for precipitation. We had somebody looking at precipitation uh, in sub-Saharan Africa and found that you know, major changes in precipitation in critical growing phases of crops also led to an increase in the likelihood of civil war by 2 to 3%. Now, that's not a, a particularly large percentage, but it is when you consider how, how impactful uh, you know, a civil war sure. uh, uh, or how improbable that sort of event uh, is. So the climate change literature is, it falls into the, one of the first buckets of drivers of food-related instability that we cover in Dangerously Hungry. The second is resource competition. Right here we're talking again about competition over permanent resources like land and water that are needed for agricultural production. Uh, and the obvious, most obvious example again is the African Sahel where we have this sort of conflict between herders and pastoralists. Uh, so this is an area I think that, that continues. It's one of the most obvious ways that food-related instability can occur, right? When you have access to, when you lose access to these fundamental building blocks of agriculture or there's competition uh, over those things. The final bucket that we talk a lot about in winning the peace of drivers um, is economic shocks. Now, economic shocks are, are probably what you see most in the news, right? When you think of the 2007-2008 global food price crisis, in that time period, we saw the prices uh, of staple crops rise really dramatically over a short period of time, and it led to conflict in about 40 different countries. We think it toppled at least one government, maybe two, uh, and so that was, a, that was really captured, I think, quite clearly in the original Winning the Peace report. But we have more and new information about food price riots in particular uh, in the Dangerously Hungry report. So that's sort of the, the third 
major bucket there, uh, which is economic shock. So when you think about the drivers in that way, it then leads you obviously to a conversation about the individual motivators. Right. 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 And in the report, you talk about three different motivators uh, in particular. So you're talking about uh, desperation, grievance, and governance. Yep. I wondered if you could explore those a little bit more. Yeah. So like the drivers, uh, you know, there are these these are just sort of conceptual framework that offers a re- the reader uh, a way to enter this topic a little more easily than sure. sift through these 8,000 peer-reviewed articles that we sifted through to produce our, our Dangerously Hungry report. Um, so take it with a grain of salt. Sure. These buckets are, are, are just that, a conceptual framework to help you get your head around this. Desperation is, um, I think, probably the largest single, single individual motivator that we sure. find for people um, participating in food-related instability, right? Again, we refer to this as the opportunity cost thesis. Once the uh, value or benefit of engaging in violence or participating uh, in violence from a non-state actor group uh, exceeds what you would get from your normal economic activity, and you're in a position where you cannot feed yourself and your family, uh, you make decisions that you wouldn't otherwise make. Desperation can be exploited by uh, extremist organizations quite easily, especially in places where food insecurity is already at quite low levels, and when people experience a shock event that affects their livelihood or their ability to produce food, they're really inclined to, to take people up on their offers of economic offers in particular. So desperation is something I think that that uh, sometimes in the literature this is referred to as greed. Um, frankly, I don't think it's greed when you're trying to feed your, yourself or your family. Um, I think there's more, uh, you know, I don't think it's, I think that's the wrong word, frankly. Grievance is, is the second bucket, though. Grievance is a little bit more complicated because it sort of cuts in both directions. Um, I like to think of grievance as you know the single largest predictor of conflict in a country is a history of it, frankly, right? That's just the nature of conflict. It's the nature of human nature. Uh, food insecurity can be a straw that breaks a camel's back in these sort of contexts and can cause societies to cleave on pre-established lines. So uh, when you think of food security as a grievance, you're often thinking of it simply as a threat multiplier. It's the last thing, it's one more thing on a list of, of longer grievances. But grievances also has this sort of coalescing power as well in the sense that um, when we have events like food price rises, for example, or food price increases, sometimes that affects crops or foods that have really important cultural significance in a country. Right, so that might mean, you know, think of, of bread in the Middle East or tortilla in, in Mexico or, you know, uh, pasta riots in Italy. These things have a way of coalescing uh, communities as opposed to dividing them and when you have food price rises uh, that affect these foods of cultural significance, it cuts class hierarchy, it cuts ethnic divisions, it, it, it cuts through all the other ways that you might dissect or, or, or divide a society up and causes all of those people to take to the streets simultaneously. So desperation, um, sorry, grievance itself sort of cuts in both directions for that reason. It can divide and it can coalesce. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The last is governance. You know, we all know that when there is a food shock in a country, it's acute shock from you know natural disaster or man-made conflict. 
the way that a government responds is really important to how people perceive and trust government. And so many people turn to to violence when they lose faith in government or they feel the government has responded in a way that wasn't appropriate. And so uh, the governance motivator, I think, is particularly strong. It's also something that is exploited by extremist organizations in particular. Very often, extremist organizations will come in and say, well, listen, we can provide a sense of justice. We can provide a sense uh, or a social safety net in a way that the government can't, and we can do it better. Uh, and so when a government fails to provide for its people in, in the event of a food shock, it really creates uh, an opening. It opens up a door for someone to come in and say, well, we can do this better. Uh, and so the governance piece is, I, I think, the, the last individual motivator that, that we talk about in the Dangerously Hungry Report. So in relation to food, uh, food-related instability, do we see a cycle in many places where you have kind of conflict creates a famine or creates food insecurity, and then even though peace might uh, come about, the continuing food insecurity leads to food instability? Food yeah, instability. I mean, I think you, it, it is a terrible feedback loop, mm-hmm. the way that conflict interacts with food insecurity. Hunger drives conflict, conflict drives hunger, and you find yourself in these settings where Um, societies can't quite get a foothold, right? Because even as you come out of peace, if you're not meeting fundamental human needs, those sort of grievances continue to grow over time. You know, this is the reason it's the base of Maslow's pyramid. If we can't figure that out, we we certainly can't figure out how to govern ourselves or live in peace with one another and, and, uh, you know, sort of higher levels of human function. So what role do you see in in kind of breaking that cycle of uh, maybe NGOs or uh, other nations uh, yeah. in these areas. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that there are, there's obvious things that we can do on the funding side. I mean, I, I work on Capitol sure. Hill trying to convince lawmakers <laughs> to spend more on these topics, and I don't think we do, frankly. We are an order of magnitude at least off in how much we are applying to wow. this problem, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're also facing incredible fiscal challenges coming up in this in the next coming year. The appropriations process is getting very tight. We can't even decide on, uh, you know, fundamental things like debt limit. So how are we going to make good, sound, forward-looking funding decisions as it relates to international food assistance? Um, and certainly we're not thinking about the ways that failing to do that might impact our own national security here at home. So I think there are things in the funding side that are are quite obvious. But frankly, I think we need to be doing more on the sort of food as a weapon of war legal doctrine. You know, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't want to go too deeply into this, but I will say this. You know, there have been things uh, and steps that we have taken, of course, to try to codify the right to food or the denial of food in international humanitarian law and international human rights law. The problem is, even if we make symbolic gestures towards condemning starvation crimes, we still haven't figured out a way to hold people accountable when we've identified that something like that has happened. There really is no way right now to litigate that. You know, the United Nations Security Council has passed Resolution 2417. I know you've written about this. 2417 condemns the use of food as a, uh, as a weapon of war in, in major conflicts. It creates a reporting mechanism for uh, nations, NGOs, observers who see this happening in real time. 
But who is ultimately responsible? You know, when humanitarian access is cut off in a certain place and it's denied, and which is a you know very clear violation of, of international humanitarian law, who, what individual is is held accountable, and how do you do it? Do you go to the international criminal court? Do you use domestic courts to do that? You know, uh, at what point are they are, are they liable? I mean, it it's just becomes very very complicated because uh, you know these obfuscation and and. And uh, you know, no one, no one since Hitler has said I'm, I'm intentionally trying to starve people. Right. You know, yeah. yeah so it's enough. a really, it's a really challenging thing to, to litigate, frankly. So I think we need to be doing more on, on, on that front. I don't know what that is. I'm not a legal scholar, sure. but I do think that we are going to have to provide test cases that sort of stress test the way that we think about international humanitarian law and starvation crimes in particular. And we're going to have to start uh, throwing things at walls and, and see what sort of sticks in that front. That, that has to happen. You know, and then on, you know, on top of that, it's, it's, it's about trying to make investments in resilience so that we, we don't have to continue to, to pile money uh, behind international food assistance programs year after year. Building resilience, you know, we've seen a lot of work, for example, in the Africa Sahel in, in Niger, where WFP has been working. They've got some really incredible outcomes from resilience building programs there. They're trying to do some land rehabilitation. And what they found is that about 80% of the families who participated in those programs do not need assistance when others do in the area. Uh, and this speaks to the sort of fundamentals we talked about: resource competition, you know, grievance-based conflict, um, you know, the the violence between herders and and sedentary agricultural communities. All of this stuff is being tested in this stew in Niger right now with really good outcomes. Uh, and the whole point of that is, you know, when you have climactic change, when you have um, stress and resource competition, when you are rehabilitating landscapes and allowing people to grow food for themselves in sustainable ways. You don't need to come in with this assistance. And when you do that, there's greater social cohesion. Uh, there's greater trust in local government. You know, there's all these sort of, of, of really nice outcomes associated with that. So we need to be doing more, I think, on the longer-term resilience side as well with communities around the world. Excellent. No, very fascinating. And yeah. to wrap up, what, what do you see the major findings of Dangerously Hungry that we should take away as, a, as, a, as citizens, but also uh, maybe for decision makers in Washington around the world? Uh, what yeah. should they take away from this report? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess first and foremost is that we have now, through winning the peace and Dangerously Hungry, looked at about 115 academic studies that explicitly test the link between food insecurity and global instability. That relationship is sort of unequivocal at this point. You know, it's growing every single year. We have more and more people looking at this. We're getting a more nuanced understanding uh, of this relationship, but we know fundamentally that it exists. There is a straight line between these two things. Sure. Now, how it plays out in individual contexts can vary, of course. So first and foremost, this is a relationship that exists, and it's empirically vetted uh, and very clear in the academic literature. You know, the other thing is that the drivers that were tested by these researchers are, are quite robust. They're looking at eight separate drivers of, uh, well, sorry, 12 separate drivers of food-related uh, instability, things like food prices, things like um, you know, the, the uh, access to agricultural resources and land and water, precipitation changes, et cetera, uh, and linking them to at least eight separate types of instability, ranging from 
peaceful protests all the way up to civil war. So the relationship is quite diverse as well. It's academically robust and it's been tested with a lot of different variables. Um, so fundamentally, what I can say is one of the best things that we can do to improve global stability is to feed someone that cannot feed themselves or their family. That's the simplest, most concise messaging I have. There you have it. Dr. Chase Sova, Senior Director of Public Policy and Research for the World Food Program USA at the United Nations. You can see more of their work and learn about them at their website, wfpusa.com. You can watch this interview as part of the GNSI Speaker Series on our YouTube channel. Feel free to like and subscribe. You can also follow GNSI on our LinkedIn and X, formerly known as Twitter, accounts at USFGNSI. And be sure to catch our other new podcast, What's Really Happening, where GNSI's Executive Director, retired Marine Corps General, and former Commander of Central Command, Frank McKenzie, lends his unique experience and analysis to specific national security topics of interest. That's going to wrap up this episode of At The Boundary. Each new episode will feature global and national security issues we found to be insightful, intriguing, fascinating, maybe controversial, but overall just worth talking about. As a reminder, this is the last episode of 2023 as the team takes a break for the holidays. We'll begin our new season on January 8th, and we have big plans for the podcast in 2024. We hope you'll join us. our entire team here at GNSI, I'd like to wish all of you a Merry Christmas and the best of holiday seasons for you and your friends and family. I'm Jim Cardoso, and we'll see you at the Boundary.